Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, Wealth Strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I mean, I have a friend. She's an economist. She's trying to buy a home right now. Even economists are like struggling with this question of when to jump in and how long to expect affordability to be an issue. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm James Rogers, a financial columnist at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. This week, we're doing something we haven't done in a while. We're taking questions from our listeners. We asked you all to send in the money matters that are on your mind, and boy, did you deliver. And instead of answering ourselves, we're doing something a little different this time. We're calling upon our MarketWatch colleagues to offer their expertise. So, without further ado, let's get started. Our first topic is something that's on a lot of people's minds these days. Housing. This question is from a listener named Sunny. He writes, buying a house seems impossible these days. We won a bidding war for a place. What's the best way to put money down? Should I use loans against my investments or can I use some of the investment money directly without being penalized for down payments? What are normal closing costs? Why so many lawyers, agents, and fees? It's a discouraging process. Any way to make it easier? For this one, we're handing the microphone over to my colleague, Artie Swaminathan who's been on the show before. Hey, Sunny. I know buying a house can be a very tough and discouraging process, but it is one of the biggest investments you're going to make in your life. So hang in there. Homebuyers today are dealing with a very unusual housing market. The 30-year mortgage rate as of early August is over 7%, and that's double, even triple of what buyers were getting during the pandemic. Plus, a lot of people who bought a home during the pandemic who have no reason to sell are not selling because if they do, they'd have to take on a mortgage at 7%. So homeownership today has become a lot more costly than during the pandemic. So to answer your question, well, technically questions, since there are many of them in there, I'm going to go one by one. We won a bidding war for the place. How best to pay the money down? What percentage of the home's price did you allocate towards the down payment? Most people think of putting down 20% to avoid paying mortgage insurance. And here's what people typically do if they don't have enough money to cover that amount. They receive a down payment gift from friends and family to buy their first home. They withdraw money from their investments in the stock market, in crypto or elsewhere to put towards their home. Some people dip into their 401k or their retirement accounts and others use money from the sale of the home that they're presently living in. You can also look for down payment assistance from your state and local organizations. You can look for a list on the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development's website. This will really depend on where you live and also see if you qualify. Now your next question is, should I use the loans against my investments or can I use some of that investment money directly without being penalized for down payments? Now that's really up to you. 
If you are being hit with a fee for withdrawing investments early, then don't prioritize tapping on that money. It's also generally not a great idea to tap on your 401k early and withdraw money to pay for things. Loans may make sense for some people, but you have to see whether the interest you're paying on that is more than the fees that you incur through early withdrawals. You need to assess both options and see which one is a better route. And then you ask about closing costs. What's a normal range for closing costs? In case you're not in the thick of home buying and don't know what closing costs are, they refer to fees you pay when you close on your mortgage. These fees go towards various things like the cost of having your home appraised or title fees and so on. Typically, closing costs are between 2 and 6% of your mortgage amount. It does not include your down payment. That's completely separate. Estimates from Closing Corp which is a company owned by a real estate data firm called CoreLogic, tell me that in New York, average closing costs, including taxes, can run up to $17,000. In New Jersey, it's around $8,000. The most expensive state for closing costs is actually D.C., where your bill can go up to $30,000 for a home that's around $770,000. So then you ask, why so many lawyers, agents, and fees? So that's just how the real estate industry is set up. It's mostly set up to protect you, the home buyer, as well as the homeowner when they're selling. People in the business want to protect themselves for lots of reasons. Things like a homeowner defaulting, or if someone breaks a promise, someone is racist, someone is predatory, and so on. There are so many agents involved for one reason or the other. But if you think you've spotted a junk fee or something else you consider unjust, do send us a note and we can investigate. Finally, you note that it's a discouraging process and ask if there's another way to make it easier. I would say talk to people and see if they're going through the same thing. Venting will make you obviously feel better, but it will also get you some clarity on whether the process is just a little bit more detailed than you initially thought or whether something strange is going on. Thanks for that, Artie. So, Stephanie, what are your experiences of house buying? I bought three of them between 2001 and 2006, if that period of time rings a bell. That was uh, during the run-up in housing prices or the housing bubble. And then I've bought two homes since then. So, yeah, I've had quite a bit of experience uh, buying and selling homes. What about you? Um, Never bought a house, but I've bought two apartments both in New York City, which is obviously its own its own thing in terms of a housing market. So, um, yeah, I've got some experience, but it's, you know, I, I, like you, I bought at a, a pretty hot time in the housing market. So it's really different out there today. I don't know what interest rates were like when you bought your properties, but I mean, I have a friend, she's an economist. She's trying to buy a home right now, and she messaged me yesterday or the day before and she's trying to figure out, you know, when is the Fed going to cut? And should I plan to refinance when rates fall? Or should I hold off a little bit longer until rates fall? So it's a huge, even economists are like, you know, struggling with this question of when to jump in and how long to expect affordability to be an issue. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering whether you know, there's a sense that people think that they should wait for interest rates to improve or not. I mean, it's the it, it's the, the, the big dilemma. I mean, one of the things that we were always told when we were looking to buy an apartment was that there's never quite the perfect time to make that purchase. So, you know, maybe sometimes people just have to jump in. 
Coming up, we break down central bank digital currencies and the tropical locale you should visit if you want to test one out. That's after the break. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we answered a listener question about the current housing market and how to improve the home buying experience. Now we're going to completely change gears with our next question. Stephanie, take it away. This one comes from a listener named Everett. He wants to know more about central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. He says, I've done a fair amount of research on them and I'm still struggling to understand some of the finer points. To answer this question, we went to Greg Robb. My name is Greg Robb and I am the economics editor at marketwatch.com. Central bank digital currencies are a new form of money based on the new technology of blockchain. And you basically can have funds at the central bank. It'll be a sort of like a money you put at the central bank, and then you can use a wallet to use it, just like you would with a regular bank. It's really phone-based. You just go to your retail shop and you just wave and you pay. And the one thing is there are no fees. There's no fees for the business and there's no fees for you. So your money would be at the Federal Reserve instead of a conventional bank, and it would all be digital. Some people say that could come with certain advantages. One of the benefits that supporters of the technology say is that it would allow everyone to get interest on their deposits. Right now, many Americans don't have enough, a lot of money in banks, and so they're not getting any interest on their deposits. But if it was at the central bank, they could earn interest, say, 5% on their money now, just so it would kind of level the playing field between rich Americans and poor Americans. Best place right now for people who are really interested in this topic is Jamaica. They've been using it now for two years, I think, and they give cash back. They say that your money is safe. Losing money is a thing of the past because you can't lose this money, can't be stolen. If you lose your wallet, you might get the wallet back, but nine out of 10 times, the cash is gonna be gone. If you, you lose your phone, your cash won't be able to be touched by anyone. 
I'm not an expert on the security, but I do think that you will have passwords and QR codes and you're going to have to scan in. And um, I think it's 100% more secure than cash. I do think we have seen occasions where, you know, somebody has robbed you or made people go to a ATM machine to take money out. Perhaps that could happen in this case, but that would be, you know, kind of very nefarious actors at work. There are a lot of perspectives on central bank digital currencies, and we'll get into the arguments against them a little bit later in the show. First, let's talk about some of the potential benefits. One of the main arguments for a central bank digital currency is that it could make it easier for all Americans to have a bank. It's really hard for some people to bank. You know, banks throw up all these sort of like barriers to banking. You have to have a certain amount of money. You have to have a certain kind of ID. And there are a lot of unbanked Americans now, generally poor people in generally poor regions of the country. So that is another reason that people are interested in this. If you look at the the way it's been used in Jamaica, the government in Jamaica is really making it easy for people to open these accounts. You don't have to have too many forms of ID and they want everybody to have one. So that's one of the reasons that some people like the idea. Another potential benefit from CBDCs is it could be a way for a central bank to easily connect with citizens. Democrats sort of really liked the idea about the central bank digital currencies a few years ago, especially when during the pandemic, when the government was really trying to give people funds because of they had lost their jobs, remember, during the COVID times, and that the government wanted to give everyone a check. There is no better way to give everyone a check than to deposit it in their central bank wallet. It could also be used for things like distributing tax refunds. Yeah, potentially, and that would keep it safe. And, you know, a lot of people have trouble with these social security checks being stolen on the first of the month. So potentially it would just go right into that account. So, Stephanie, what do you make of this possibility? Yeah, I think it's something that could be really useful. And right now it's just more or less a hypothetical. I mean, some central banks are actively thinking about digital currencies. Others say they're not really even trying to go in that direction. We'll have to wait and see. I think it's it's potentially a way to include a lot of people in the payment system and give them access to something that could potentially be revolutionary. I think one of the big concerns has to do with, you know, privacy, but if that can be sorted out, it could be a really useful thing. I have to ask, do you still use cash? Yeah, actually all the time. Weirdly, somehow on Long Island, cash tends to be preferred in lots of instances. So I do actually find myself using cash quite a bit. But it is, you know, many people think we're kind of moving to a cashless society. It's funny because I live in Brooklyn and there are areas that I go to where it just seems to be almost completely cashless now. Now, I am kind of a fan of cash, like I'm I'm old fashioned in that way, but I've become much more accustomed to the idea of, you know, living without it as a, as a way to conduct transactions. So I don't know. I mean, I, I do feel that like where I live, we're, we're really on the kind of the cusp of of a move away from that. Stephanie, do you think you would actually use this? I mean, I'm pretty open to different kinds of technologies for payment processing. So, yeah, I think I would be open. What about you? I think so. I mean, anything that isn't, anything that is new, there's always that pushback, isn't there? You know, and I, like anyone, I need, sometimes I need a little bit of time to 
to get used to the new thing, particularly when it's something as personal and as anonymous as money. You know, I, I think I would use it, but it would I need to see some really, really good, some good use cases first. How is it going to make my life easier? That's that's the big one. Jamaica isn't the only country that's interested in central bank digital currencies. Right now, all the work on central bank digital currencies is taking place outside the United States. Jamaica using it and the Bank of International Settlements, which is like the central bank central bank, has been doing a ton of work, doing a lot of research. And also people should keep an eye on England. England seems to be of all the advanced economies, the closest to starting what they call the digital pound. The central bank and the government have agreed that they think a digital pound is worthwhile. They're inching forward to one. They haven't had the final decision, but they've sort of been laying the groundwork. So it looks like England might be the place where there is sort of a test. If you want to read about central bank digital currencies and what it all means. The Bank of England has done some reports and everybody's also stressing that cash is not going away. So it'll be maybe two generations or something before we use the central bank digital currency. You know, some people say we're going to get to the place where there is no more cash, but that does seem pie in the sky at this point. One place that doesn't seem to be moving towards CBDCs yet, the United States. There was a lot of interest about about three years ago, 2019, I'd say, the Fed was interested. But these days, the Fed has gotten cold feet. The Fed did a project, a pilot project, the Boston Fed and MIT, and all went really well. The technology works. It's there on the shelf. But the Fed is leery of it. They don't want to move forward without getting permission from Congress. And they're facing a hostile banking industry that sees central bank digital currencies as a threat to their business. One of the things that people are worried about here in the United States and they've been talking about is if there's another financial collapse or deep recession and people get scared of is their bank healthy and they start to move money, there is some sort of sense that people would want to hold money at the Fed and not have any of their money at the banks. One of the things we learned from Silicon Valley Bank is that money can flow pretty quickly. Money flew out of Silicon Valley Bank faster than we've ever seen before. Caught everybody by surprise. So there, that is a concern for people, what people do with money and how banks could be hurt by this. Another thing that is slowing things down is the Fed is seems leery of becoming sort of like a real bank and facing customers. That's not something the Fed has done. The Fed has always sort of stood behind the banking sector. And one day you think, you know, you would open the doors and somebody would complain to the Fed about something. That's a whole different kettle of fish for the Fed. And potential worries about CBDCs go beyond the banking sector. Some people are concerned about how this is going to work if suddenly people all across the world are using Fed digital currencies. You know, it's a little bit of a scaling factor. So I think that that's another thing that people are worried about when it comes to digital currencies. And I don't think there has been that great an answer. Another concern people have that they're thinking about is, you know, some people do, are worried that your money is going to be tracked, that everything you spend on is somehow the government's going to be watching you and that they're going to be able to see what you purchase and the things that you don't want anybody to know you're buying. So that's a concern. But at the same time, there seems to be some benefits from the fact that there might be some people who won't be able to somehow someday walk into a room and give somebody a suitcase full of cash for something, right? So there's some sense that hopefully maybe this can get 
financial crimes can come down. But how to kind of like uh, thread that needle is going to be tricky for regulators, tricky for Congress, tricky for the Federal Reserve. Finally, Greg says there's another reason it's unlikely we'll see a central bank digital currency in the U.S. anytime soon. When it comes to financial innovation, the United States has always lagged. As you can see, it's the way our government is set up. We have Congress and private sector has a lot of influence, a lot of sway over Congress. The Fed is a creature of Congress. So banks in the United States have always lagged behind innovations in other countries. I remember five years ago or so, you could go to Canada and go skiing and sit down and have dinner with everybody you skied with, say 30 people or something. And the waiters didn't blink an eye to bring you your individual bill. And at the same time in America, you would have this bill where everybody was having to pitch in money, you know, pay for somebody else's whiskey. That was still going on. Overseas people are way ahead of us in these terms. Just the way our system of government is, we're slow to the uptake on these things in the financial sector. But, you know, in some ways that's not too bad. But, you know, the way innovation works, we are kind of slow on these things. I spoke to one bank analyst recently, and he said that central bank digital currencies was on the top of everybody's tongue a few years ago, but now he rarely hears about it. I think if it's drawn out in England and everything goes well, that'll definitely give some momentum for the United States. But I think we should all ask our editors to send us to Jamaica, preferably in February. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. And thanks so much to everyone who submitted a question. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Arti Swaminathan and Greg Robb. To have more of your money questions answered, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Meta Lutzoft and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Steve Kutz was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ.